All right, we're uh, headed toward the end of uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to talk tonight about chapter 15, and it kind of really fits with the theme of the night because we're talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, as Spencer's saying, lift it up, he defeated the grave. So that's what we're going to talk about, and I'm going to start a little out of character with a joke. All right, Grace says, I'm not very funny, and uh, it's my daughter, if you don't know who Grace is. And uh, Stuart agrees. I have to admit, I'm probably not the funniest guy. I'm kind of a serious teacher, all right? I practiced this uh, joke on Stuart last week, okay? God will provide. Anybody ever heard this? This is a joke that filters around the churches, all right? But it fits in with my lesson, so bear with me, all right? So the joke goes a little like this. You know, obviously, if you've got uh, children that are grown, you've had to probably go through this, and it's when the daughter of this husband and wife were going to bring home their son, her future son-in-law, and they wanted to, to meet him and get to know him. So he came over to the house one night, and the dad was like, listen, I want to, I want to just get to know you a little bit more. So he took him into his study to, to maybe ask him some questions. So he goes in, and they sit down, and he's a student. Uh, so his first question to him is, is well, son, uh, what are you going to do when you graduate? Do you have a job or anything lined up to, to take care of yourself and our daughter? And he said, well, no, sir, I haven't really even thought about that, uh, but I am certain that God will provide. And he said, well, okay. And then the next question to him was, well, have you thought about maybe where you're going to live? Do you have a house or any plan to, to get a house in the future? And he said, well, no, not really. I haven't thought much about it, but I'm sure that God will provide. He said, well, you know, listen, you know, you're you're spending a lot of time driving around in my car that my, my daughter drives, and I'm just curious, do you have your own car? Do you plan on getting one? So, well, I don't have my own car, but I'm certain that God will provide. So the dad, kind of a little bit unknowing what to do, they say, well, let's go have dinner with, with your girlfriend, my daughter, and my wife. And uh, later, the mom came to the dad and said, well, how'd it go with the son and the, with the future son-in-law? And he said, well... I don't really know. He said, on the one hand, uh, he doesn't seem to have any plans. He doesn't have a job lined up. He doesn't know where they're going to live, and he doesn't have a car. But on the other hand, he thinks I'm God. Okay? <laughs> Pretty good, right? Okay. So one or both of them probably are wrong. They're confused about who God is, Right? But, you know, we as Christians a lot of time even get confused about who God is sometimes. We also tend to think that maybe he's a God that's a God of convenience sometimes, right? Uh, well, one of, the, one of the things that probably has created the most confusion over the years is the question of, is Jesus God? That's a big question, right? Is Jesus God? In fact, I could make an argument that it's probably the biggest controversy of Christianity, is Jesus God? And if you really took a, a poll of other religions, you would find that one of the single biggest dividing lines is this question of, is Jesus God? The, the Jewish people obviously didn't believe it. Many today still don't. Muslims don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe that Jesus was a great prophet, but they don't believe. In fact, there's a great book that I recommend. with the Night of Books, okay? It's called Paul Meets Muhammad. And Paul Meets Muhammad is a fascinating book that basically uh, puts forth a modern-day debate 
taking place today between Paul and Muhammad. And the debate is revolving around, is Jesus God? And what they've decided is that whoever can prove whether Jesus actually rose from the dead, if the resurrection was real, okay, then they agreed that Paul was right and Jesus is God. And if the resurrection was not true, then they agreed that Muhammad was right and that Jesus was not God. You see, because if, if Christ actually rose from the dead, okay, then it proves that he is God. That was what they were in agreement on. And that if he is God, then you must believe what he says. You must believe his word. Uh, in fact, uh, Tim Keller, great uh, preacher and writer in New York, says that if, if the resurrection okay, is true, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? Okay? So I can make an argument that the resurrection is maybe the single most important part of the gospel. Okay? Central basis, if you will, of our salvation. What does Romans 10, 9 say? It's a verse we repeat often. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? That word Lord there means God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, and believe in your heart, what? That he was raised from the dead. It's the whole basis of our salvation. We repeat that all the time. You can't separate the resurrection from salvation. Uh, I'm going to give you a lot of information tonight, okay? I'm going to give you a lot of quotes. Uh, so it's going to be an informational uh, lesson. And one of them here from David Guzik. I love David Guzik. He's a commentary writer of the Bible. And he says this, the resurrection of Jesus is not some add-on to a more important work on the cross. If the cross is the payment of our sins, the empty tomb is the receipt, showing that the perfect Son of God made the perfect payment for our sins. The payment itself is of little good without the receipt. This is why the resurrection of Jesus was such a prominent theme in the evangelistic preaching of the early church. And it is the theme tonight in this chapter 15 that Paul is teaching on. Because here in Corinth, we will see just from the context of this chapter that some are starting to doubt this. That some have started doubting, like other Jews and Muslims, whether or not Jesus is God and whether or not the resurrection actually happened. You know, and, and we see this sometimes, right? Even amongst Christians or people that profess to be Christians. I think of Charles Templeton. Have you ever heard of Charles Templeton? Anybody? Charles Templeton started out preaching with Billy Graham. They were leading revivals together. And it says that he, in his own story, he says that I saw one time a picture of a baby on the cover of Time magazine that was dying of thirst. And he said that in his heart, he just decided that day he could not believe in a God that would allow that to happen. I've known friends. I have a good friend of mine who was a preacher of God's Word, went to Baylor and studied and studied and studied and eventually convinced himself that, he, that there was no God. That Jesus couldn't have been God. Okay, and most of the time that comes out of what? Pride. Because you want to know everything, right? You just can't accept that there's something beyond the bounds of your, your mental ability. But let me tell you, I don't know about you, but for me, I want a God that's bigger than me. Right? I want a God that, that I don't know everything. But some people, boy, they'll let that just eat them up inside. 
You know, and they'll pick it apart, and they just cannot, they can't get comfortable not knowing every single thing. And, you know, that's probably what's happening here in chapter 15, all right? So what does Paul do in the first four verses? He hits them with the gospel. In fact, this is probably the clearest presentation of the gospel in all the Bible. And it's in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. The gospel, right? Very simple, straightforward presentation. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Right? That's what Paul hits them with first. Remember the gospel, okay? Don't forget this. But then what does he do after that? After that, he wants to make his case for the resurrection. So what Paul's going to do first is he's going to make his case for why they can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So if you look in verses 5 through 8, he says, And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve, the disciples. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he, also, he appeared also to me. So there's two things there that he really gives for us, two, two things that we can look at that Paul gives, and it's on your handout if you're following along on this handout. Two things I would tell you that Paul is pointing to in, in his mind that proves that the resurrection actually occurred, that, that Jesus is God. And the first one is, is that Scripture said it would happen. You see there in verse 4, he says that in accordance with Scripture, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. He's talking about prophecy. He's really pointing them back to the Old Testament and all the writers of the Old Testament. And he's, I'm sure, thinking of verses like Isaiah 25.8, if you want to write that down and, and look at it later, which says he will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off, from off all faces. Talking about Jesus. Talking about the resurrection. Psalm 1610. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the place of the wicked, hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. I could go on and on, okay? Giving you verses that talk about Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, there's more than 300 Messianic prophecies in the Bible. And... You've probably heard this statistic before, but the odds of all three of those being met in one person are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I have no idea what that means, but I do know this. It is three times the amount where scientists say there is no chance. It's three times the amount where scientists say there is no chance. And even Jesus talked about this, right? If you looked at Matthew 12, 40, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the first thing Paul is telling them here is just look to Scripture, okay, what you've been taught. Okay, you just aren't seeing this. And then the second thing he points to is he's saying that eyewitnesses saw him. Okay, they're talking about all the people. He went through it here. He said, Peter, the 12 disciples, 500 people. The Bible talks about all of this. James, his brother, which, by the way, 
uh, the, most people would say that James didn't even believe until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Okay? And all of the apostles, and then even Paul. And uh, in this last point, okay, even Paul is a point that a lot of critics and scholars point to to say, you know, listen, this would have to have happened. This must be true because how and why would this Paul guy, you know, be preaching, spending the rest of his life preaching, you know, and he kind of, Paul actually kind of talks about that a little bit, doesn't he, here in, in this chapter. He says there in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He goes on there to talk about how grace, though, by grace, he was able to stand there. You know, lots, lots, lots of people talk about this and point to this as really proof. Lee Strobel is one of them. I don't know how many of you ever heard of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel uh, has been here at Prestonwood before. Lee's done a, a lot and talked a lot on this. And In fact, on, on commenting on the 500, he said that he went to a psychologist friend of his and he said, listen, if 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, is it possible it was just an hallucination? And he said that his friend said, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. <laughs> it's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. And listen, if you don't know Lee's story, you know, he started out as an atheist. Uh, he was an attorney. I don't Hold that against him. And uh, he was a reporter in Chicago, and he set out to prove that Christ wasn't God. Uh, and he wrote a book, A Case for Christ. He wrote another book that I, a lot of people have read A Case for Christ, but he also wrote one called A Case for Faith. I give this book out like it's candy because it is an unbelievable book that will help you in your faith. A Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. But like Lee, you know, there's a lot of people that don't believe this Bible, Right? You know, one of the things that always, always, always trips people up when they're out there sharing their faith is when they come across that, that person that says, you know, when they start reciting Scripture, and that person is just like, you know, well, listen, I don't care what your Bible says. I don't believe it. So give me something else, right? Why should I believe this? You know, and listen, there is a certain amount of God's got to soften somebody's heart, right? Okay, but you should be prepared. should be prepared, Okay, for those types of questions. And the good news is that, you know, I wish I had hours because we could teach for a long time on all the different things that I could point to outside of the Bible to prove the resurrection of Christ. In fact, that's what this book is really about. One of the ground rules that they set early on is, listen, you cannot rely on your Bible. You cannot rely on the Koran. So you can quote it. You can cite it. You can talk about it. But you will not win if your only argument is God's Word. Not, not in accordance with the rules. So this book goes through in great detail, giving all kinds of reasons to believe outside of the Bible. In fact, he quotes many, many other uh, ancient writers, uh, people like Josephus, which was a Jewish scholar, or Tacitus, which was a Roman historian and senator, Lucian, which was a Greek writer, uh, or a philosopher, Maris Serapion. Okay, talks about all of them in there and all of their writings, how they actually attest to the resurrection of Christ. And he also points out some facts in here. Okay, when he's discussing the Bible, the small amount of time that they will allow him, he's pointing out things that really, though, while they're biblical facts, they wouldn't be there if they weren't true. Like, for example, that a woman was the one that discovered the empty tomb. 
And the reason for that, right, is because in this day, when this was taking place, nobody would have believed a woman. They couldn't even, like, testify in a court. Okay, so, so the, 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 the point is there's no way that the disciples or that the writer, Paul here, would, would record this if it wasn't true. No reason to make up something that people would think you're crazy. You know, and, and, the, and also the fact that, that the, the Romans you know, attested to this. Why in the world would they want to prove that there's an empty tomb? So this book talks a lot about that. It gives you a lot of good facts uh, that help you explain and, and, and be able to defend your faith. And I got some other quotes here for you because, like I said, I can't go through all of those. I don't have enough time, but I want to give you a sense of what some people say about this. Okay, some good uh, quotes from critics, all right? These are two critics. Uh, Paula Fredrickson, who's from Boston University, says, Disciples' conviction that they had seen the risen Christ is historical bedrock. Facts known past doubting. And this guy, Jared Ludeman, who was a German scholar. In fact, he was a, he was a teacher. Started out as a believer and then finally decided he didn't believe anymore. In fact, he got so anti against Christ that they removed him from the university. This is what he said, though. It may be taken as historical certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Can't dispute it. Doesn't want to believe it, but can't dispute it. Okay? How about a few more? Harvard Law Professor, okay, Dr. Simon Greenleaf. According to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than just about any other event in history. Or theologian Charles Spurgeon, I suppose, brethren, that we may have persons arise who will doubt whether there was ever such a man as Julius Caesar. And when they do, when all reliable history is flung to the winds, then, but not till then, may they begin to question whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For this historical fact is attested by more witnesses than almost any other fact that stands on record in history, whether sacred or profane. One more. Brooke Westcott was a British bishop. He said, there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. It's true. Right? Scholars, whether they're Christian or not, support the fact that Christ rose from the dead. There really is no question the legitimacy of this. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to, to understand here this. They're starting to question, did this really happen? And when you start questioning that and you don't really believe it, and you start letting your mind roll down that road, then you start thinking, well, really, maybe Jesus isn't God. Why do I believe in him? It does happen. I gave you some examples of people. And Paul, though, he, he kind of adds some, some, some humor in himself if you read it that way when he starts talking about, okay, but if this is not true, if all I'm telling you is not true, then Paul says, listen, we really are, and the kids will like this one, stupid. You can write it down. How many times do you get to write down stupid? Is it right? Not that often. We really are stupid. Listen to what he says in verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You can tell they're questioning this. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. What did Jared say vain meant tonight? Worthless, useless, right? Our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. For we are even found to be misrepresenting God. We're lying. We're lying about God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise if it was true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. You're still dead in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, okay, we are of all people most to be pitied. Man, does that hit home? If this life is our only hope, man, we are the most to be pitied. Basically, listen, we're the dumbest people on earth is what he's saying. Okay, if we're running around preaching this and it didn't happen, then we're, we're not very smart. But then he goes on in the next set of verses there, and he talks about in verses 20 through 28, he starts making the case again, gives some theology here, all right? He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came to death, by, by a man has all, come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, talking about Adam and Eve, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Lots of lots of revelation here. Again, he's speaking theology. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put under subjection, it is plain that he is expecting who put all the things under subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Saying, listen, okay, I'm, I'm explaining to you the theology behind this. You can believe this. Christ is going to put an end to death once and for all. I've told you, I've, I've proven it to you by looking at Scripture and by talking about the eyewitnesses and these types of things. But listen, look at the theology behind this, all right, and what, what, what the Scriptures has told you about who Christ is and what he's doing. And, you know, We're dumb if we're not doing this, okay? If we're out here just preaching, not believing that he, he killed death once and for all, defeated death, then we're just silly. And then in the next part there, in 29, he starts talking about another reason to believe. This one, to me, honestly, is one of the most compelling. And it's one of the ones that's talked about a lot. Okay, it says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? That is one of the most controversial verses in Scripture. I don't understand really why. To me, it means one simple thing. If Christ did not raise from the dead, then why are we going around baptizing everybody in his name? It's crazy. Why are we doing this? doesn't make any sense. He said, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if... Humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So what he's basically saying is, listen, this makes no sense. Why am I out here risking my life every day? You know, you've, you've read the account of what Paul went through. Why are we risking our life? And, and I say this is one of the most compelling things to me because I think about this all the time. Like, I mean, does it make any sense 
that if, if the eyewitnesses, if the disciples, if Paul, if the people that saw and touched Jesus, if it didn't happen, if they knew they were making this up, if they knew that it was all a lie, why in the world would they take it to their death? What possibly would be the motivation? And that's what he's talking about here. You know, British scholar N.T. Wright says, as a, historian, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of Christianity unless Jesus rose again. You just can't explain it. There's no explanation for why they would be out there telling people about the gospel if they knew it to be a fraud. In this book, he, one of the great lines, I think, is he says, listen, liars make poor martyrs. You ever thought about that? Liars make poor martyrs. I think that's probably true, right? If you ask me, the person that goes around lying is first and likely to want to save their own hide when the time comes. Instead of like Peter that says, no, I want to be crucified upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified like Christ was. There's just no way. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying if that was the case, we'd just be living it up. No reason to be working for our future home. Live it up for here, right? A lot of people live that way. A lot of people live that way. Think it's all about today. I bet there's a lot of people in this room that would argue against that. Not all about today. Tried a lot of things and found a lot of brokenness until you found the one true thing. But if the resurrection is true, okay, on your sheet there, then guess what? God died for you. God died for you. Think about that. God died for you. One of the things that I say often when I'm talking to people uh, about God and about and witnessing them, telling them about Jesus, I say, only God could, only God would. Only God could and only God would. Why don't I say that? Well, only God would, because think about it, okay, because nobody, no loving God would send somebody else to take that beating and to die on that cross. It goes against the character of God. First, four, first John 4a says what? That God is love. There's no way God is sending somebody else in his stead. He's only going to do it himself. Okay, only God would do that. Has to be him. He's going to take the beating. Not going to let anybody else take it for him. It has to be God. And only God could. Okay, nobody else could live a perfect life to be that perfect sacrifice. Okay, to be that perfect sacrifice, to die as a perfect, unblemished lamb of God for our sins. Only God could, only God would. What a beautiful picture that is, isn't it? That God would do that for us. You know, and Paul then goes on. He describes this, this beautiful picture, starting in verse 35. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Oh, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat of wheat or of some other grain. <clears throat> but God gives, you, gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, other, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. There is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But is it not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual? The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man in dust, I love this part, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. Man, isn't that a good promise? Come on, that's a good promise, isn't it? And then he goes on to tell you a little bit more about what this means, the glory of it all. The glory of it all. And there in verse 50, it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal must become put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? It's quoting prophecy from Hosea there. 13, 14. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? We sung about this in church the whole night. We're singing about this very thing. Death has no sting. Death has no sting. And there's a great song. I was listening to it all week. I thought about it when I was preparing for this. And, and just thinking about and praying about that particular scripture there. Carrie Job sings a song called Forever. She talks about this. I want to play it before we end here.
So isn't that Paul's point, right? Phone says, forever glorified. He's alive. He conquered death. He's overcome. Right? That's what Paul's trying to get across. We are conquerors. I could give you verse after verse, right? The Bible says that we are more than conquerors, right? It says we have overcome death, hell, and the grave. That's what the resurrection means. That's why it's so important. You know, ours is not a dead religion. It's a living one. Second Timothy 1.10, I love this verse. Jesus abolished death and brought life. So simple. Brought life, and not just any old life, right? Abundant life. Abundant life. He ends this, uh, this chapter in verse 58. I love this verse. You can, only, you can only live out this verse with that life that comes through Christ. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not useless. It's not in vain, right? It's the only way that they would have risked their life every day if it wasn't useless. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. All right, real quickly, I'm going to give you two points of application. All right, what does all this mean in your daily life? Number one, be ready to give a defense. Be ready to give a defense. What does First Peter tell you? Be ready to give a defense when somebody wants to come out and question you about why you have hope. All right, be prepared. Be prepared. Grab some books like this and read them. All right, when somebody comes after you, never let that seed of doubt get in your mind. Never, ever, ever. There's a lot of people out there in the world today that want to change your mind. They want to tell you that there is no God, that Jesus for sure isn't him. All right? And you can just move that way. That's what this whole book is about, right? The first Corinthians is about giving in to culture. Isn't it so applicable that it ends here in the resurrection? Why it's important to know that Jesus is God. All right, what did he say there? Bad company ruins good morals. Be careful. Be careful. And the second one, ask yourself, who do you say Jesus is? Everyone's got to decide that, don't they? Who do you say Jesus is? I was watching... Uh, a movie, God's Not Dead 2, recently. It's a great movie. Lee Strobel's on there testifying. He does a great job, by the way. All right, and at the end, when the main character, Elizabeth, is on the stand, and he asks, who do you... He said, he's talking about how Christ came and talked to her, and she said, he told her, he said, he asked her the question, who do you say I am? Came to her and said, who do you say I am? And she said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, I hope that that's your answer. If it's not then don't leave until you talk to somebody, okay? Don't leave until you talk to somebody. But if it is your answer, okay, if you're a Christian, a believer, and you believe in the resurrection and the living God, then live like it. That's what I want to encourage you to do. Live like it. Live in the victory that he talked about here, okay? Because death has no sting, right? There's nothing that death can do to you, all right? You win when that comes, all right? So live that way. Hebrews 2.14 says that he's been rendered powerless, the one that was given power over death. Think about that. He's rendered powerless, the one that was given power over death. That's Satan. He's rendered him powerless. Literally, God, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, took the power from Satan and gave it to you. Let that sink in for a minute. He took the power from Satan and gave it to you. In your hand, through Christ, the power of God. Think about that. That's how we need to live, Right? Oh, death, where's your sting? It was swallowed up in the resurrection of Christ. And I can tell you, for me and my house, we're going to say that Jesus is God. All right? All right, let me pray for us.
Father, thank you for the power that we receive, Lord, through the Holy Spirit. And because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, we know that death has no sting, Lord. Lord, you conquered death, hell, and the grave, God. And we, I pray, Lord, for each of us will live in that victory, live in that position of strength and power, Lord, when, when the world is hard. Lord, when it's hard and it beats us down and, and we feel like giving up and when, when life is just hard and we, and we pray for people and it doesn't seem like it's working. You know, when we're battling demons, when we're battling Satan every day, never, ever forget. Let us never forget that power that we receive because of Christ and his resurrection. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.